Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Sam Mendes' new wartime drama, 1917. The film follows two young privates fighting with British forces during the First World War. They are given the impossible mission of delivering a message into enemy territory to prevent 1,600 men, including one of the soldiers' brothers, from walking into a deadly trap. In addition to 1917, Mr. Mendes' directorial credits include the feature films Spectre, Skyfall, Away We Go, Revolutionary Road, Jarhead, and Road to Perdition. He received the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film for his 1999 film, American Beauty. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Mendez spoke with director Ed Zwick about filming 1917. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Thank you. Well, I mean, I've just seen it now as you've seen it, so my reactions will be as gobsmacked as yours. Um, It's a remarkable film, and thank you. Thank you, Ed. Thank you very much. And I have, uh, you know, a number of very personal reactions to it, but some, you know, professional ones as well. The first comment I would just make um, in general is that there is this Homeric quality to it, this epic notion of this young man's journey through these stations of the cross or through these levels of hell. Um, Was there any metaphor of that sort that you were thinking as you were writing? Um, Initially, no, actually. It it became, it it started as a very human story. It it was influenced and inspired by my grandfather, who obviously is, is, Mm -hmm. um, it's dedicated to, who fought in the war from 1916 to 1918. He arrived as a 17-year-old. And um, he never spoke of his experiences to his own children. And it wasn't until he was in his 70s that he talked about them at all. And it was us that he told them about, his grandchildren. Um, And it was always, I was very struck by uh, the fact that he was always very alone in his stories. Um, And the story that particularly stayed with me was a story he told about carrying a message across no man's land. He was a very small man, he's five foot four. And uh, they used to give him the messages because the mist in the winter on no man's land hung at six feet. Right. So they couldn't see him above the top of the mist. <laughs> Great. And um, that image of that, that one little man alone in that vast wilderness surrounded by death, that, that was the inspiration for the film. And, uh, he also used to do something which we laugh at initially. He used to wash his hands incessantly. This was in his late seventies, you know. And, we, and me and my cousins would laugh at him. And and then I said to my dad, "Why does Granddad wash his hands all the time?" And he said, "Well, it's because he remembers the mud of the trenches and the fact that he could never get clean." And I, I suppose that the fact that it was still part of him. But that, but it, but it started as that. But then as we pushed through it and I decided it was going to be two hours of real time, the first movement of the movie was going to be, as it were, from afternoon to dusk. And the second movement was going to be from night until dawn. It wasn't until we got to the second movement of the film 
that I felt we moved out of something naturalistic and into something That's a bit right. more mythic, mm -hmm. which is what you're talking about. And that kind of descent into hell mm -hmm. that happens in the town is not your imagination. That is what we talked about, that sense of descending into hell and then pulling himself back across the river Styx, right. back up into the land of the living again, um, to the sound of that song. And, and that's where he meets the living again. Th that was something we talked about. And, and then stylistically, we found a way to mirror that mm -hmm. so that that's the first time in the movie when he wakes up and he's been knocked out where the camera detaches right. from the character for the first time. You know, so th there was that and that sense that, um, that, that, you know, he was no longer somehow in the land, entirely in the land of the living. You know, it's also a mirror of his emotional state. He wakes up, he doesn't know what time it is. He doesn't know where he has to be anymore. He could have been asleep. In fact, we don't know. That's the whole point. He could have been out for two days, you know. So in a way, the, the flares and all that kind of stuff was a way of mirroring his confusion and his, his loss of self. Well, one thing that occurred to me, and you talk about the camera, you know, obviously there's, there's an effect of this, you know, single shot. And what I realized at a certain point, in particular at the very end when he sees Richard Madden, when he finds his brother, and I realized that as we're watching his brother's reaction, that I am finally fully participatory as the camera. Because there, there's a, a challenge, it seems to me, which is you can't do coverage, you're not following him, and obviously your staging was very clever often so as to have seen him and then found the ways to get the reactions, and that's, that's artful. But something more happened to me, which is that it no longer became artifice. I felt the point of view in that moment, seeing the reaction of the other actor, and I was internally experiencing it, and that was the accomplishment to me of the film, that it, that it, it arrived at that point, that I was fully inhabited, the camera was inhabited by the character at that moment. Well, it's interesting you should mention that, so thank you, first of all, but th it's interesting you should mention that because actually that gave me the most sleepless night. The two things that gave me the most sleepless nights were not the biggest technical challenges. Right. They, they were the scenes in which I felt, uh, w was I doing a disservice to George to, who played Schofield by not showing by his not face. having the camera on him absolutely so you know I, I made a rule with myself if we got to a point where I felt this would be better if we cut then I'd done it wrong and I had to go back mm -hmm. and either rewrite or restage or often both so because the whole thing was obviously constructed uh, as one piece form and content combined right and the moment the two separated or one was pulling against the other, I thought we've got it wrong and we had to regroup and go back again. So that was one of them because I felt we've earned this moment of seeing, of seeing Schofield, you know, give the information about, about his friend's death. And yet at that point, I felt when we got there, because we shot mostly in sequence, we knew him so well. That's we right. knew exactly what he was feeling. We knew exactly what his face would be doing. And there is a tiny moment where he turns back towards camera mm -hmm. and thinks, no, I haven't finished. I have something else I want to say. And he turns back. And in that moment, you reconnect with him. And that's all it took was to just make sure we had that one little connection. And he took it back into the scene again. The other scene that gave me the greatest headache was the first scene of the movie. Because I, I'd made all these, you know, Christy and I who wrote the script, 
we, we, I was very determined that there's no exposition, right. you know, and the exposition was very, very gradual. You lent in and you found out the details, but you didn't have the answers to everything. You know, a, a, a detail about a letter from home or their different reactions to leave or one of them had a medal or, you know, all of these things. And they lead you, they pull you on. None of them had solutions. But here was the first scene of the movie where we have five minutes. I wanted them just to be with each other for a bit, to have the courage to just walk and not say anything. And what was said to be almost irrelevant. And yet at the same time to find out about the characters. And that scene gave me a lot of headache (laughs) to calibrate it right. And also to to paint a picture. We've been here since, we've been waiting since Christmas. We've been waiting a long time. When are we going to go over? You know, what's happening? All of those things are going on in that first scene, but they happen stealthily. And um, so it's, it was often the subtleties that were difficult. To, I didn't want to trample it with the, the stylistic decision to you're, make, you're to also, make a single You're shot. also creating a sense of time. You're, you're, you're allowing yourself to not be leisurely, but to, exact, to in fact exist in real time mm-hmm. as people would speak and not speak so as to establish what the rhythm will be of yeah. that. And I think you change the way you watch. I think subtly it happens. But I think what happens is you, you realize soon after it starts, hang on a minute, it was a very interesting with our first preview audience because I didn't want to tell them anything about how we'd shot it or anything about anything, really. You never do with a preview audience. And, so, and then ask them at the end, did you notice anything about how it was shot? And at least half of them, less than half of them, said one shot. Um, you know, they, they what they were was completely engaged. But what what you want is for them to experience time as the characters experience time, which is in a movie that observes more rules, more of the rules of a ticking clock thriller than at some points than a conventional war movie. You want them to feel every second passing. You also want to understand distance and physical difficulty and scale. And to begin to understand, no, you're locked here. You're not going to jump 200 yards. You're not going to jump half an hour. You are going to have to go on the journey with them or not if they don't make it. So you begin to watch in a different way and your eye begins to watch image in a different way. Sometimes, obviously, you're connected to the character and the camera is very subjective and you're very intimate. But other times, you know, we allowed, we staged it in such a way as the camera's moved away from the camera and the, ca- and, and, and the, the vision is of the gaze is very objective and you're seeing the characters small in an epic landscape. And in those moments, you know, you, you, you begin to understand scale and, and, the, and, and your eye is allowed to wander across mm-hmm. land and pick out details. Do, is that a body? Is that a rat? What was that in my peripheral vision? You know, and I was very, I was very, I was trying very much to get the eye to operate as it does in life, you know. Oh, it focuses um, in just, and out. Well, to just catch things, mm-hmm. you know, and to not know always exactly what it was that you saw, not to point the camera and say, look over there, look over there, but to let them pull away from camera. Then that when they first hit the front line, they pull away from camera and you just sit in that sense of waiting, just waiting, people living there for years, just sleeping, eating, shit, all in the same place. That that filth that they lived in and you there's an element in them i wanted the movie to simply bear witness to it to say to about no man's land this happened this is this was there well, well and these two that, men are just cutting through it well did you know i know that peter jackson had been working for four years before you right probably as you were beginning i think probably that that movie was 
probably coming out, and you'd already been working on yours for some period of time, I imagine. Yeah, he but released that, it when we were prepping. Yeah, but it was that, very, very helpful for us. I was going to say that documentary. I don't know if any of you have seen it, Peter Jackson's documentary, which is so extraordinary. Um, those faces seemed to me, and some of the, just the little detail had to have helped inform you, I think, at that moment, and Dennis, I suspect, as well. It did. I mean, you know, it was very difficult with this movie because there aren't many. <laughs> the history of World War One movies is very shallow compared to the pool is very shallow compared to the Second World War and Vietnam, and um, and also, you know, we tend to. There's always a danger with period movies that you think you know the First World War or the Second World War, but actually, what you know is movies about the Second World War, and you and and, and obviously, there's an enormous amount of documentary footage for Vietnam for the Second World War, but there's almost none for the First World War. So we were drawn back to photographs again and again, and in fact you know, rather than other movies. And um, Roger and I had, had three photos that we, that were basically, we felt were the movie. And they were just, they were just, you know, photos taken by soldiers of other soldiers. Um, there's one particular one, which is there were three of them tucking into uh, breakfast and, and, and about 20 yards away with three dead bodies. And they were just, they just, the fact that they coexisted with the dead on a daily basis, it was a simple fact of life. And it wasn't remarkable to them. They weren't making any comment. It was just, you know, the bodies just piled up. And and the sense of loss and destruction on a huge scale is sometimes better expressed in, in small images. And and the, the familiarity that they have with death and showing thousands of bodies. Right. So it was trying to get that, it was trying to judge that. It was also the way the camera was. It was it was the depth of field. It was the, the composition of the shots. They just had the feeling we were looking for. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny when you talk about what other movies, because there is, you know, those that preceded this, that single tracking shot in Paths of Glory, which was maybe at its moment, probably the longest tracking shot that anyone had ever done. And it was in the context of the trenches as well. How old were you when you saw that? Oh, uh, I must have seen it well, 10 years ago or 15 years, whenever I was, you know, on my first Kubrick Jag, maybe 20 years ago now. Um, <laughs> It's actually not as long a shot as you think, because I looked at it again, obviously, for obvious reasons. It's actually, a, it's, it's quite a bit of back and forth between, between Kirk Douglas and that, but it's a, a remarkable piece of composition, yes. as always with Kubrick. But um, yeah, that was, that was one of the things that lodged in my mind, a grand illusion and a couple of other, I mean, you know, there have been great movies about the war, but I felt none that had, had expressed it as the, the human experience of that war. I mean, for me, this war, it doesn't have the, the, the cultural significance in this country because, of course, the U.S. wasn't a part of it in the same way. But for us in the U.K., it, it, throws a, it casts a huge shadow. And you walk into any village and town <clears throat> and there's a memorial to the fallen and there's, you know, we wear our poppies on Remembrance Day and all that sort of stuff. So it does have a huge significance. It is just, I started writing it in 2017 on the 100th anniversary, in which, you know, when it was set. And... There is a sense with this war, particularly a war in which the boundaries of Europe were redrawn, in which these men were fighting for a free and unified Europe that we would do well to remember at the moment. The winds that blew before this war are blowing again. And there is a sense that, you know, history can teach us a lot, and this war in particular, um, because it, it, was, it was not a war in which it was easy to define who the bad guy was in the way that it was in the Second World War. You know, no, there's a few freaks out there who think the Nazis had a point, but pretty much, 
consensus that they were they, they were the bad guys. You know, that there was we were fighting against a universal evil. That was not the case. Far far greater human losses in the First World War, and there was no universal evil. It was confusion and mismanagement, and a confused notion of national identity. And and that that is something that we we need to address again. You know, these are the lessons. I mean, not that I made it as a lesson. You know, I made it as a as an experience, as a, an immersive experience to put you in those shoes. But there is a, something behind that as well. Sure. Well, fr from the sublime to the ridiculous, there's another trope which may sound sacrilegious, but to a younger audience, I think it's it's worth even trying to talk about what video games have become, because each moment presents a new challenge and a new landscape, and and that you know that protagonist through the point of view the camera has to franchise it and you know transcend into the next level and i think there's there's actually something to be talked about in that sure i mean you know listen these guys are artists of the highest possible caliber exactly you know? and and anyone who's played red dead redemption as i have had the good fortune to do with my children <laughs> uh knows you just goes how the fuck did they, how do, do, they this? do it yeah you know so of course there's that immense sort of um that that sense that the first person moving through landscapes is now almost a familiar trope and yet it's also a lazy comparison because at the end of the day we're not in control you're not in control of this story you know, you're in the hands of a storyteller or storytellers. You, you know, you're alone in the dark. And it asks for emotional investment. And it reminds you the difference between movies and video games. Right. You know, and that is a crucial difference. And it's, I'm, that's what I am interested in. I'm interested in investing you emotionally in a story and telling it to you um, in a way that allows you to abandon, to lose yourself in it. You know, I'm, I'm not asking for... Uh, physical engagement in the way that you are for a video game. It's a very different and equally brilliant thing to be doing with your life, but it's not what we did here. The other thing is there's a constantly shifting, a very deliberate, constantly shifting point of view. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not always trotting along over the, someone's shoulder. It's not always, you know, seeing someone 50, 50. It's, it's often expressing things, you know, close up of a, of a, of milk or a moment when the camera detaches from the character or all sorts of things that are not logical, but have an emotional truth. And that's also something that film can express that perhaps video games can't. So it does ask you to define the difference between the two and why it is that, that we are interested in one and not the other. Well, well, I mean, in fact, what I've always felt is the minute that they ask you in a video game, say, to engage actively, what you're giving up is what is obligatory to have a real emotional experience, which is essentially passive. Um, when we're told stories as children, we engage our imagination, but we abandon ourselves. We surrender to that moment, and that allows ourselves. And the minute that we engage something that is somehow active, I think it cuts us off possibly from that emotional response. Yeah, they're also, we're watching human beings. The most interesting thing in any movie, <clears throat> at the end of the day, is the people and the characters. And, and if they're not interesting, doesn't matter how fancy your camera work is or how clever the conception, it's not going to engage you. When I sit and watch, you know, I watched Al, Al Pacino trying to, you know, tear a strip off Stephen Graham the other day in, in The Irishman, I kind of became him. I, I was as enraged as Al Pacino. <laughs> And that's what it asks for. It asks you for emotional investment. That's what it is, you know. And and so anyway, but I think that 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 that's where it splits. Um, but nevertheless, you know, it's a pretty am amazing landscape that they create in these days. 
Um, I have a, I, I was saying I have a personal relationship, not just the number of people that I've worked with that you've worked with this in film whose work is in really at reaching its, its halcyon moment, I think, in this movie. But uh, George McKay was 12 years old when he came to work with me in Lithuania. And he came on the way from the airport to the set. He had a car accident. And he arrived with a huge black eye. He could barely open his eye. And we were beginning to shoot literally an hour later or two hours later. And it was like, what are we going to do? And of course, we rewrote a little bit so as to have him. And he was so game already at 12 years old, and it could never have anticipated what you then were about to put him through. But, but, but talk about George for put, a moment. Put him through is the right phrase. <laughs> yeah, he's a remarkable actor, and he makes it look so easy. And, you know, the second half of this movie, he carries on his shoulders with almost no dialogue at all. He's, he's a remarkable actor. But, you know, like a great silent film actor almost. Yeah, there is those big blue eyes and that white, there's that white skin in that trench at the end, the way he looks up at the trench side and thinks, I'm going to go over. I don't know, it gives me the chills every time. He's, he's wonderful. But you, you mentioned how game he is. You know, one of the things about this movie is we, we were in this constant dance of trying to, trying to combine great precision behind the camera all the time, extremely, I mean, you know, just every, every second choreographed with spontaneity in front of the camera. You know, we were embracing accident, trying to encourage the actors to live it as much as to act it. And so constantly changing in conditions you know whether it be weather or or you know live animals or babies or or you know or mud or you know inability to stand up all of those things just you just got to go with it you the it's the character handling it not you so let's see what happens and sometimes we had scenes like Blake's death scene for example where I I rehearsed it once weeks before and it was so I could feel it was so good I, I just had to get them to remember the physical journey of the scene. This is where you pick him up. This is where you drop him down. Mm -hmm. you got to... And then I said, now wait. You know, just remember when you pick him up, when you put him down, where, you, where his body position is, and don't do it until we're ready. And it's going to take us a while to rehearse it so that everything's just right. Because I knew he could burn through that in two right. or three takes, and then it would take me hours and days, perhaps never get Get it again. Right. But George, at the end... You know, he gets over the train and he's running down that trench and out pour those hundreds of adrenalized <laughs> extras. <laughs> All of whom know it's one take and like, you know, this is my moment. And and sure enough, you know, <laughs> they just, he about. got absolutely <laughs> wiped out. And he just got up and carried on. I mean, and it was, and you know, the sight of, of, of 200 crew members, you know, just cheering him on. You know, it was like a sporting event. It was like, come on, George, like this. And he got up and he kicked around. You know, all I had to do, and it's in the movie, all I had to do was, was dub out the swear words <laughs> when he said, fuck, like that as he got knocked down. But, you know, that, that feeling that you, you had in the movie where, where with this particular film, was so unusual, was every person on set was invested in every shot because, of course... Every shot involved them. And so you had that immense, you know, normally it made you aware of how fragmented most filming is. You know, oh, this bit's a close-up, doesn't refer to me, or special right. effects are waiting for right. the big or we'll bit. Have another, or we'll have another shot at it. Yeah, we'll have another go. But, but also that everyone has their own little bits and somehow, you know, so that before you know it, people are off in the corner reading a newspaper or scrolling through their phone or whatever. And suddenly there was that feeling of everyone was in it together. And it was very moving. And, and that was partly because the way we constructed it was, was to have George and Dean start prep with us, you know. Because mm. So I said to, to them, listen, I'm going to offer you the parts, but I need you to be with us for six months before you, we even roll, roll camera on this, you know. Right. And 
they didn't work the whole six months. They did. They took time off. They went to boot camp. They did went to France and Belgium on a research trip, etc. But I could not build. We could not build anything until we had re rehearsed the scene and and stepped out the journey. So we started on an empty field with them in scripts in hand, and we did the trenches. We marked the trenches out with poles. You turn left here, you turn right there. And we built, then we started digging the trenches. And we dug over a mile of trenches and filled them with people. And then we did that with no man's land, German trenches, quarry, orchard, farmhouse, roads, town. Imagine it. And every step had to be accounted for before we built the sets. There was no way out. Right. So the level of tension in me particularly <laughs> of that this is it you know this day is in this five minutes of film is in the movie whether i like it or not that was a totally different experience but it also meant that everyone else was living it with me and that, that was moving yeah i mean i'm curious to talk about prep a bit because once you had done that how much did you pre-visualize say the pass-offs or say um you know any any of the trade-offs that, that had to happen or say a shot as he's walking across the bridge and you have to prepare the camera in terms of uh, what Roger's going to do and whether it's going to be a, a you know, strong above or whether it's going to be a drone or whatever you're going to do it. How much was, was pre-vised? There was no, do you mean pre, do you mean pre-vis as in? As in any kind of an animatics? No animatics. None, none at all? No, and I did that because I did that on Bond and I hated it. Okay, so was um, it storyboards then? Say again? Boards then? I did a lot of storyboards, yes. And a lot of talking, you know, a lot of imagining you know, when you're just thinking about one camera, it, it kind of is much easier than trying to work out 12, the 12 setups or the 16 setups that are going to express the scene. You know, you just, okay, uh, we made a rule, a pact, Roger and I, it was, we were going to move the camera where it was best to express the story and, and, and not think yet about the engineering of it and how we would actually make it work. So it was a kind of, it was a kind of utopian idea of camera, you know? But we also knew that we didn't want it to be self-advertising. So we didn't want it to, you know, we weren't going to ask it to go through a keyhole or follow the path of a moving bullet or go into someone's right, right. eye socket or whatever. Right? <laughs> <clears throat> Not my cup of tea. So, or Roger's. And so, you know, there were certain rules. And I also said to Roger Verrio, and on this here, that is not a one-shot move. That's a badly edited scene, okay? Right. I mean, obviously, you could do that in certain situations in a normal movie, but in a one-shot movie, that felt like an, that felt like a, an apology. Uh -huh. So everything, that was my responsibility. So, for example, a scene like the scene with Colin Firth at the beginning in, the, in Aaron Moore's dugout, there was a strong, there was a strong temptation to go back and forth. But you had him George. You had a certain moment where we had George walk around behind the table, yeah, so, so he could then be captured again on camera. Precisely. So we had the map on one table, That's the aerials right. on another. Right. Colin turned around. The boys went around the other side, and it became a two shot of the boys, right. which then became, you know, them. And and we went, we we pivoted, you know, 180 degrees. So we were looking back into the dugout. Now, what you can't see is a good example of how complex these things, because I wanted the camera to float over the tables, but also be unhooked and then turn around. It was on a techno crane. They unhooked it from a techno. And as they, as we were panning to them, getting their provisions and picking up their grenades, 
they retracted the techno crane and opened the back wall of the set, <laughs> dropped the back wall of the set, closed the ceiling, <laughs> so, so that when we came round back onto Colin, he was just sitting there calmly <laughs> with his cup of tea. It sounds like madness. But ten seconds before, people but were also like, people are fuck, people fuck, are fuck, running fuck around. Like they're running yeah. around behind the camera. It must have been a- like a absolutely. like a Marx Brothers. It, it looked ridiculous. Right? <laughs> and then and then we go. And then I send it off. We send it off to Lee, our brilliant editor, Lee Smith. And he said, yeah, they didn't really, first four takes, they were a little bit, you know, detached. I'm like, it's because they were thinking, what the <laughs> f*** are these crew members doing, right? And, you know, um, and, and I think that that, that that was part of it, was, was the, the handoffs, as you call it, and the, and the, the shifts from rig to rig. The, the 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 goal was always to make it absolutely you know smooth and fluid so that the camera had this sort of stealthy always slightly threatening forward movement like mm-hmm. you're being pulled through the movie by gravity almost rather than presented with image you know or rushed there was nothing jerky handheld but then equally there was nothing that was too right extravagant you talk about it's very interesting you talk about the crossing of the bridge because we did six or seven different storyboards of that sequence mm. because I couldn't work out how to get him across that bridge without suddenly turning him to an action hero. Right. And I, and I, I thought this is really tricky. You can't suddenly become James Bond, you know, after two thirds of a story in which, you know, he's really at best an accidental hero. So trying to get him and trying to express it, that, that the, the tenuousness of how, you know, he's tiptoeing along that ridge, the ridge of the broken bridge and stuff like that, and getting him to do his own stunt and leap and all that sort of thing. So that was a, a wire rig. So it, it was, it was you know, it was uh, operated by two grips, you know, with a stable eye, which is a stable And then did you pull head. it off the wire at the end? And the, exactly. Mm. And then it's hooked onto the wire. The wire carries it, wire's pre-programmed and rehearsed, and then drops on a descender rig and then right. unhooked on the towpath that goes under the bridge. Right. Um, and then follows him, you know, up. The, so that is genuinely one shot from from him coming out of the truck, the wow. pan to the town to him going into the lockhouse is one shot. Right. So, and that is just, you know, that's just an example of the engineering and the the, the be- when you when you took your eyes off the monitor screen and looked at the operation, I know they could not have been more different. Right. <laughs> the shot was, you know, stealthy and gracious and and precise and the camera operator <laughs> running around like headless chickens. You know I mean? that's. A, but they were all focused. They knew what they were doing. And I've, and I've also never known anyone in all the things I've ever done who is better or more um, adroitly prepared than Roger. I've never seen anybody do more preparation than, no, than he's him. He's brilliant. You know, it's, it's inspiring because, you know, when someone is at the top of their craft, as he has been now for 30-odd years, 40 years, and he's the one who, you know, he's he cares more than anyone. And, and you know, he is... He's more meticulous and prepared, as you say, but he's also a poet. You know, he's also um, understands light and image and the power of image, and and, and as befits a man of few words. You know, mm. and I remember when we were doing Skyfall, we were on the roof, <coughs> we were on the roof of the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul, and there all these there were six mosques, and they were calling the faithful to prayer, and Roger was looking into the sun, sunset and taking photographs with his little Leica. And I took a photograph of him and sent it to James, his wife, and said, you know, here, just so you know what Roger's doing at the moment. He's on top of the Grand Bazaar taking a photograph of the sunset. And James takes it back. Well, that's Roger. Give him something to photograph and something, and give him a camera and something to point it at, and he's happy. Oh, that's beautiful. And I thought that's exactly right. You know, he, that's how he expresses himself. Well, the, the poetry that, as you say, as you descend in that second act of the film, as he, some of those images are, are so startling 
and so um, iconic, and 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 there it just elevates the whole the whole story, makes uh, it he's takes a, it to a new place. I'm being given a sign here about one more minute to, to talk. Um, uh, I don't know. I just I just think that it's 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 a very there have been a lot of directors who have tried to do this kind of thing before. I mean, I can evoke Hitchcock, I can evoke others, and and yet this succeeds in a way that the others were self-conscious and, and I think limited by it. And this seemed to explode into a, a different place. And I just want to congratulate you for it. Thank you. And thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned for more great Q&As with directors Destin Daniel Cretton and Clint Eastwood. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.